Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This episode of The Secret Library podcast is brought to you by Scrivener. Get 20% off the desktop software by using the code SECRET at literatureandlatte.com. This is episode 40. My guest is Paul Schering, shockingly the first screenwriter we've ever had on, given that The Secret Library is based in Los Angeles. Paul has written countless screenplays and was the creator of the popular TV show Prison Break, which aired from 2005 to 2009, and we'll have another season out later this year. We're talking today about his first novel, The Far Shore, which is out this month, and I love this conversation because one of the themes that we focus on is writing for yourself versus writing for other people and all the tensions that go around that. So for anyone who's ever experienced that tension, I think this episode will be great for you. So enjoy. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So this is a, a big moment because you've had plenty of releases in your career, but this is your first novel that's been published, correct? That's right. I did for many years, you know, growing up, uh, you know, I started writing kind of seriously, um, or let's say regularly, uh, when I was in ninth grade and it was always prose and it was always, you know, uh, novellas and that sort of thing. And I really wasn't interested in the film world. And, uh, a friend actually kind of talked me into going to UCLA film school, uh, because I didn't really know what to major in. And, uh, he said, I said, you know, why, why would, why would I go to film school? And he said, well, what else are you going to major in? And so I thought, <laughs> you know, honestly, I mean, it was literally that. Uh, and so I was a terrible student at UCLA. You know, I, I never attended classes. But the thing I did do was I wrote prose all the time and I read literature all the time. And I was just one of those guys with, you know, a dog-eared Jack Kerouac book walking, you know, up on campus with his head down, reading while he's walking. And then subsequent to um, the graduation, you know, I had a friend uh, in the film department who said, hey, you're a writer guy. You want to you wanna help me write a screenplay? And it was actually a very interesting story, a true story about some some drug smugglers in uh, 1972. Uh, and so I wrote it. And, and literally, we got attention from agents right away. And I started getting paid. And that was this really weird kind of backdoor way into the film business. And so I've been doing that for 20 years now. Um, and there's always been that niggle, which is, you know, but this is not ultimately what writing is to you. This is not ultimately what you set out to do. And, you know. My mother passed away a couple of years ago, and it just really gives you that mortality thing going where you basically say, you know, what do I really want to do? And so that that kind of got me on the road to writing this book. So did you have this idea cooking on the back burner for the far shore the whole time? Or when did the idea come up? No, I'm, 
I serially moved from one project to the next. You know, I, I've basically been writing nonstop for 35 years. I don't know, 30 years. You know, I, I'm not one that suffers from um, writer's block. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. And it's it's that whole it's that whole you know very early on somebody uh, pointed me to that Hemingway line you know they asked Hemingway uh, what the secret of writing is and he said um, ass plus chair <laughs> uh, and I, to this day I think it's the greatest quote which is you know sit down and do the work um, and so I've done that but again sometimes if you're not careful you there's not the exact kind of writing that you necessarily set out to do that you're doing and so like I said I just kind of took inventory a year or two ago and I said you know I, I need to write something that's uh, from a deeper place in me. And as to the genesis of this particular book, I can't speak specifically, you know, to where I where I heard it or encountered it, but the kernel was that I had maybe seen a documentary. I don't know. Anyhow, the, the character of a World War II medic came up. And I thought about that character and I said, what a, what a totally hopeless job, which is you're running around with some duct tape and some morphine and a couple bandages while the rest of the world's blowing itself to hell around you. Uh, and I thought, how does that person persevere, right? You know, it, for every one you save, 50 are killed around you. And that soon kind of touched on, let's not make this podcast too spiritual too quick, but... Um, no, we're, of, we, love the, we love it, so go for it if you want. But it, it, it touched on some of the, the themes in Buddhism, which I'm, which I'm, you know, quite favorable towards. And basically, you know, Buddhism is, you know, all of life is suffering and you know, how, what is the way out of suffering? Uh, and I thought, you know, those, there's a nice overlap there. You know, this guy can embody that, that, that literally on the battlefield, this perpetual suffering around him and, and how then, where is the solution to this? Where's the way out? And I wanted to follow him on his journey. Uh, and so that was the genesis of it. And then of course it took on lives and, you know, multiple generations and Lily came into the picture. And so, you know, it's always interesting to see where ideas come from because you can never, for me, I can never see that moment where they come out of the ether, but just after they've come out of the ether, I can remember that moment. Yeah, it's interesting that he came first because he does feel very well formed and you're reading his letters and hearing about his experience, which is so visceral, but you meet her first. Mm -hmm. That was interesting to me that she's there, but she's the one that's third person writing and then he's writing in first person, of course, because he's writing letters. Right. Yeah, generationally, you know, I want it to be not just this kind of because if you'll notice in reading the book, it, it, it's kind of a blending of, of you know, that old 1940 style of, you know, paragraphic writing where, you know, it's you know, very dense. And then hers is, you know, from the outset, my, my intention was never to have a, a paragraph longer than one sentence. Right. Right. Which is very Twitter, right? So I wanted to apply some of his search and make it relevant to people today. Uh, and so I felt like let's find somebody that seems, on the surface, completely different from him. And yet, as the story goes on, you start to see that their their destinies and their you know personal and spiritual makeup um, overlap. Definitely, and it it made me think going through knowing you know your history and having worked created the show Prison Break. I was like, here are two characters again who are trying to break out of a life that does not suit them. And I'm wondering, is that a theme that's kind of been with you all along? Well, now, yeah, wow. Um, I can't answer that. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe there is something there. I will say, I will say, you know, I, I don't know if I'm that deep in my own psychoanalysis yet, but <laughs> um, that's the 
best form of drama when you have a character who has everything against them and they have nothing really but their wits and their their will and their determination not to give in despite the fact that the odds are so long that they're basically impossible. Uh, and those kind of characters you root for and those kind of characters are just basically you're setting up for perpetual drama, right? Because everything is in their way. It's that, again, somebody else, someone else's adage, I don't know, it probably wasn't Hemingway or someone else, but basically said, create a character that people fall in love with and then drag them through hell, right? Right. <laughs> um, so, again, it, 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 I think that's, that's ultimately maybe I learned that lesson somewhere in the past. But it's not, it's not on purpose. Because I was thinking about I was like, wow, these are a lot of characters who feel really trapped and they're trying to get free. But it's also, how was that? And you've done this for a long time, but I think it's different in a novel. Maybe you get closer to the person where you do create a character that you care about and you have to put them through hell. Like, how does that feel and how is that process for you as a writer? Well, it's deeper. I mean, you know, I don't mean that in kind of a touchy feely spiritual way, but rather a, a, a more rendered way, which is to say, you know, in, in writing for film and television, structure is extraordinarily important. And, um, and you really build out the entire story in outline form in advance. I mean, you really have to. You can't. You cannot write a film or a TV show from the seat of your pants. Just start writing, you know, the pages and the scenes and the dialogue and try to figure out, you know, halfway through where you're going. You can't do it because it's just not going to work. You have to sit there and you have to build out the structure first, and you have to know where your end game is, and then even then, structure all your scenes before you write them. Whereas in um, in novels it that's the joy is the discovery process right and so i mean i knew where i, where I wanted to end up certainly right with far shore i mean i i definitely had all the bullet points and i had all the structure but the in-betweens i was just like let's find out who these characters are and what they do um i can't remember if it's uh, joan didion or somebody but i think she was saying you know i don't ever really know what i think until i start writing and I think that's kind of cool. That That's exciting and, of course, excruciating. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions was knowing how much you have to outline in the film and television world, how much of an outline you had. So you just had kind of a beginning and an ending and a premise for the characters or how much did you prepare that way before you started writing? Yeah, you know, for instance, let, let, let's take a 50-page, uh, one-hour TV show in script format, right? A 50-page script. The outline for that might be very densely, because I write very dense outlines for that stuff, 15 pages, single pages, single, single spaced, right? Uh, and it's, again, all the scenes, and here's the beginning and middle, the end of the scene, and all that stuff. So it's effectively the story before you ever start writing the script. And in the case of this novel, it was always kind of this loose three-page, double-spaced kind of, you know, okay, then there's China, and then there's the incident and the, the coal mine and, you know, all that stuff. Always, always, because the, the thing I'm very uncomfortable doing with any story is starting without even an inkling of where it ends. So, I mean, I knew where this ended. I mean, I, I knew, well, I'm not going to say it, but um, I, knew where, I knew where it ended. I know. I was like, don't spoil it for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so you know, it's almost like you have a lighthouse to shoot for, but you weren't quite sure all the little zigzags that it was going to take to get there. That's right. And in, in, in a sense, you you know, what's wonderful is both in, in the execution of the first draft and then going back and rewriting is this sense of, but I've got to earn that ending, right? You know, it has to be or, organic, as you say, to to the characters and to the plot and everything. And, you know, if you get there at the end, you're like, yeah, but that's such a sententious ending. It's like that, that, that just, you just threw that on there. They didn't, not, I didn't earn that. And so you, you become much, and, and again, that's another thing that makes you that much more 
that makes it a deeper, you know, mining process within the scenes and the characters as you're going along. It's like, I know this is the critical part where she's going to have her darkest moment. Um, that's going to, you know, crystallize the enlightenment moment. So is this dark enough of a moment? You know, it's those kind of questions you ask yourself as a writer. So it sounds like in a way writing this book was a bit of a vacation from the really, really intense outline and a chance for you to approach a story from a different perspective. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And in a purely, in, in a purely writerly, you know, just, just, just talking about the writing process. Yes, I think that's right. But, but a second vacation was from, you know, the interminable noting you get in the film business, right? Is everybody's over your shoulder, right? I mean, you just have perpetual notes and, What's interesting is, is you have, you know, because I mean, I think criticism is extraordinarily important for any of us as writers, no matter what we're writing. I don't, you know, if we're writing a blog or writing a novel or writing a, a feature film, um, you have to be able to go to people and, and get their insight and they can see things that you didn't. Right. And of course, you have to respect them. But the other thing is that's really important is you have to ask yourself. And I've learned this over the years is why what's their motivation for this criticism and generally speaking if you're getting uh, notes from like a, a film executive you know they're beholden to their bosses and their bosses in turn are beholden to the studio and the stock price right so their motivation is to make it commercial they need to make money so that above all else right so they're not giving notes explicitly uh, to make it good for good's sake Whereas, you know, your friends about your novel or something like that, their motivation is, you know, assuming that it's not just not to hurt your feelings. <laughs> well, that could happen, too. Oh, I know. I, I, always, I hate it when people give me notes that are like, yeah, it's great. And I love like, it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, but what do you hate about it? Come on. <laughs> Come on. Give me some criticism here. Yeah, but you went to art school. You know the opposite where everybody's just going for it. And uh, it can be kind of cut, cutthroat. So... There's all kinds of motivation. You're right. And this is a little bit of tangent, but this is one of my favorite parts. Just in, I'm the stooge in the story that what's so good about it is, you know, that first script that, that me and my partner wrote coming out of film school, you know, I tried to put in all the flourishes of the, you know, the literary flourishes of the moon is, you know, low over the water and, you know, all these things. And the, the agent took us in, in her room, the prospective agent, and she said, look, I'm going to give you some notes. And so I'm, a, you know, I'm that classic thin-skinned beginning writer, right? And I have my hardbound journal, and I'm listening to her. And, you know, I've got it lifted so she can't see what I'm writing, right? But I'm copiously listening to everything she's saying. And in the end, I mean, truly, if you distilled what her notes were, it was basically – all the stage direction, all your, you know, descriptive stuff is just way too thick. That's just not the way uh, feature films are written. So you need to cut like 80% of your, you know, darling, you know, descriptions of, you know, a person's breath. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you need to cut it down. And between you and I in this call, it's like, oh, well, that's great. That, that, that makes sense. And that's pretty harmless in terms of notes. But at the time, I was so incensed, right, that I was hearing this this criticism that, I, like I said, I had my journal there and, and she couldn't see it. And I looked at her and I was dutifully taking the notes and nodding, you know, wide-eyed to her. Yes, okay, go on, go on. And all I wrote for three pages nonstop was, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> And it just makes me laugh because she was right. You know, yeah. but I was that 23 year old guy who's like, look, I'm the visionary. I'm the wunderkind. It's like, how can you possibly say anything's wrong with my work? You know, well, I think it sounds like you were trying to write a novel, but you were presenting yeah. it as a screenplay. That's right. 
that's right. It's like, look at me as an artist. They're like, that's not, that's not what feature films are, you know, in terms of the script. Anyhow. No, it's all, it's so much of the dialogue. Right. And the, you know, the camera work and the acting, I mean, it's such an, it's such an aggregate, you know, it's, it's just, but the, 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 the young writer comes in there and thinks they're going to, you know, create some extraordinarily, you know, artistic work is, is really in for a shock in Hollywood. You've seen Bullets Over Broadway, right? The Woody Allen movie? Yeah. yeah. No, it just makes me, this just reminds me of the scene with Diane Weist when she's trying to help him rewrite the play. And she's like, oh, stage direction's best I've ever seen. And the, the color of the binder was a nice choice. <laughs> That, that's totally that's totally Woody Allen. I mean, he did that is just that is just spot on humor. It's just exactly oh god, that. it's so funny. I yeah. can't get enough of that movie. But um, but it does. It makes me think of like young writer who's just so invested in it because you know it's words. I think there's something different when your art form is words and you're putting it out there and it feels like well I thought this and it came through me and it's my thing. So so how did you get from that point to working for decades, writing and and handling it? Well, your skin grows thinner, you know, it, you're like an old tree, you know, you're, you're thin, you're here, you, you know, you could probably like do a cross section of my skin. You go, oh, that was a 25 year old writer <laughs> or 25 <laughs> career, writer with a 25 year career. You learn to be discerning in, 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 with criticism and you don't take it all personally and you learn what to, you know, keep and what to throw out. And again, you know, you have to ask yourself the question of why, you know, what is their motivation? Is their motivation solely to make it good for good sake? Okay, then they're worth listening to. Is it purely to be commercial? Well, that's probably going to adulterate the product. But, but who are you writing for? Are you writing, you know, I had another story where I was writing a an action film for a, for a producer who just makes extraordinarily airheaded, $200 million just, you know, popcorn movies that I mean are as airheaded as they get. Right. And so I came in there and I'm like, look, I'm going to deliver this work of art. And it's, you know, <laughs> and I did all this extraordinary research and I wrote all these huge scenes with, you know, all this incredible, you know, science, you know, research in and everything. And I'm like, that is so high quality and deep and it's wonderful work. And he comes back and, and like I said, it was, there was this expositional scene. It was like a hard sci-fi movie. And basically, um, I had written two pages, you know, this, this, scientist comes in and gets like this two page, you know, burst of dialogue that's so extraordinarily intelligent. You know, Einstein must, must have written it and everyone will go, oh, well, Einstein's dead. Oh, Paul Schuring wrote it. Oh, he's Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, the producer looks at the whole thing and he goes, you know, that two page line of dialogue. Um, can we just say it's a seed? And I'm like, what? That was the whole line. Yeah. He, he wanted to take two pages of dialogue, which, you know, this extraordinary paragraphic, you know, deep science, science dive and make it to seed. And I was the same thing. I was livid. I walked out of there for like five days. I was like, God, how can he say that? He's so shallow. He's so blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, as the time went by, I'm like, but that's the movie that he makes. You know, right. I'm the dumb guy coming in there thinking that I'm going to cram, you know, round peg in that triangular uh, hole. And, and that's just, again, you have to know who you're writing for and what the audience is, you know, what they're ultimately looking for and what they're going to make in the case of, in the case of film, you know. Let's pause and take a second to talk about our sponsor, Scrivener. Paul is a flexible writer. He writes both screenplays and fiction. So what if you want to try something like that and write more than one type of writing? Most people will have to buy more than one software. One works for documents, one works for screenplays. But not with Scrivener. You can actually write 
nonfiction projects, fiction projects, short stories, long form chapters, and it also has a fully functioning screenwriting program. So you can do all the uh, formatting for dialogue, characters, everything that you're used to seeing in screenplays, particularly if you live in LA, um, that's all in there already. So you don't need to buy another software to try a new format. If you'd like to give Scrivener a try, you can check it out at literatureandlatte.com and the code secret will get you 20% off the desktop software. Okay, let's get back to Paul. So when you decided you were going to write this novel, how did you fit that? Are, were you writing scripts at the same time? Did you take a break? Like, how did you fit this in sort of mentally and practically? You know, that's interesting because generally speaking, I have, unless I'm deep in production on something, but if I'm not in production on something, I'll generally have two assignments going at once. Right. So two script assignments. So I'll write a, you know, this pilot and this film or something at the same time. Right. And generally, you know, you write a draft and then you turn it into the studio and they're sitting there reading it, thinking about it. And, you know, the meetings are scheduled two weeks later than they're supposed to be and all that stuff. So in the meantime, you're like, all right, well, I'll just pivot over to that other one and get that other one done. And then you kind of hopscotch back and forth like that. And that's always been my method. But when I started writing this book, I had some downtime. I was in between projects. And then I got another might have been prison break. I'm not sure. I started another uh, script, another project, and I realized I can't do that. Maybe I can do that with two scripts, but I can't do that with a novel and a script because, as I said, kind of the, you know, acuity in just that kind of dense, you know, the density of writing a book is is not something, in my opinion, in my experience, that you can share with anything else. You know, I, I, anybody that can do it is maybe a lot younger than me or more intelligent. Or <laughs> I don't I have yet to hear... Uh, we had somebody on who writes um, V.E. Schwab, who writes fiction, and but she writes multiple series, and she's like, I can't be in the same stage of two books at the same time. I can write and I can edit, or I can outline and I can write two separate things, but I cannot be in the writing process with two books at the same time. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I can see how that works. Uh, I, I, yeah, hats off to her. I mean, I, 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 I totally get that. And maybe that's kind of the, the literary version of what I do with, you know, two, uh, screenplays. But I, even then, I don't know that I could do two books. That's pretty crazy. So what was the research process like for this? Cause there's a huge amount of detail in those letters talking about kind of on the ground, like you feel like you're in there's, you know, there's blood on the snow, like everything is happening. It's really vivid. So how did you get to that level of detail? Well, I have to say, I mean, that's always been one of my favorite parts of writing is, you know, because I'm not really a specific genre guy, you know, I mean, it's not like, you know, I'm always amazed by those, you know, writers that are like, well, they've got a series of 27 books about pirates. I'm like, wow, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I've kind of, in all my writing, I've always explored different topics just because I like to, I like to discover new things. And so I'm, I'm a real researcher. Uh, I got that from my mother. Um, she was a, she was a, uh, she wrote for the university of California and she wrote like 23 books and, you know, history of California and that sort of stuff. So she's a massive researcher. And so I always, you know, dump that into, diamond smuggling or prison or, you know, in this case, World War Two and, you know, uh, the dropping of the bomb in Hiroshima and that kind of stuff. And again, you know, what's interesting is, is, as we were talking about with this novel, was that you started with a, uh, a looser outline, right? 
that was mm -hmm. that three-page outline, you know, that again, that it was it was very fungible. It, it would keep kind of shifting and moving as I wrote, but but I but it, nevertheless, you know, here were the tent poles, and I kind of stuck to them. But obviously, within that very uh, uh, Spartan three-page outline, there was no research. I mean, right? And so as I got to a place, then I would say, okay, I need to know about the dynamics of Bodh Gaya in India in 1947. I can't write about that till I know. So then I would slow down and I would absorb all this stuff. And, and it's kind of an interesting kind of synergy between you built up this head of steam with these characters that you're starting to learn more and more and more about. And now you realize there's some research you need to do about the next scenes they're going to be in, you know, the dynamics of the next situations they're going to be in. And so you kind of put those characters on hold for a little bit so that you can dive down into what it was like to be part of the Battle of the Bulge in 1944. But as you're reading all that research, somewhere in the back of your head, your character's going, well, this is what I would be doing right then, you know. <laughs> and so it's this really wonderful synergy where you're, you're, your character pops up in history and says, hey, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And you're like, all right, do it. <laughs> I love that. Because I, I think what I think about is the tension between doing a ton of research before you start the book or writing through the whole draft and feeling like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to figure this if this is even viable later. But going back and forth, it actually sounds almost like you're unlocking levels like, OK, I've got this. Now I can go back in. Well, the other thing is you can always go back and rewrite, you know, I just I just think so much time is, is lost and so much momentum is lost for a writer with these angsty kind of, you know, fearful. There's these retreats from just just getting in there and getting your hands dirty, you know, because the thing is, you can always throw it out. I mean, you always can. But I find that you start overthinking things. And you can find triple and quadruple and, you know, quintuple ways that this is right or wrong or whatever. Pretty soon you don't know which is which, you know. And I find that, generally speaking, if you can just get a work up ahead of steam and blast, 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 knowing essentially where you want to end up. And then anywhere along the way, you're like, hold on, I don't have the information. Let me blast through that. I mean, let's let's dive into that research like a maniac. I don't know. I just like momentum, you know, because I, I don't like writer's block is really unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> you know? No, this sounds so when you say you're absorbing all this stuff and you're like, are you reading a bunch of books? Are you watching movies? Like, where are you finding this research? Uh, books are always wonderful because, again, that's that's kind of a deep dive as well. Research libraries, Internet, you know, real sites on the Internet, you know, movies. I don't know. I don't watch that much. It takes too long. Well, it's <laughs> probably it's, also it, when you've been involved in creating it, you're like, oh, I know what they're doing. It's hard. Right. Oh, well, oh yeah. I never go to, I never go to drama. I mean, I'll go to, I'll go to a documentary. Um, but, but for the most part, like you're right in a way you're looking at a rendering of it that way. Whereas, you know, when you participate, when you know how reading is, I mean, when you read something, you participate in it and you're, you're helping construct it in your head, you know, you're part of the the kind of creation of this thing. And, and again, that's a, a world that your character can pop into, right? Because you're part of the creative process of reading and when, when you're reading. Whereas when you're watching on a screen, I suppose you're like, well, how can I get Lily into that scene? You know, it's a, it's a little bit harder. It's like, move over, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> you're totally in the way, dude. Because, yeah, if they're all kind of hovering around in your head, then they will show up more easily right. in that context. I don't know. It, it seems like that's right, at least in this moment. 
<laughs> so what's your actual writing process? What does your kind of day-to-day writing schedule look like? Get up in the morning, uh, caffeinate. Now it's exercise. You know, I mean, that really, that's better than caffeine. Uh, go, I live in uh, Marin, so I run up in the hills and, you know, being out in nature and all that. And, um, kids getting them off to school probably. And so mid-morning, I've got all the, you know, the juices flowing in terms of caffeine and in terms of, you know, what's come out of the, out of the exercise. And then I sit down and, uh, I've, I've gotten cushy in my old age, but basically, uh, I have this, uh, leather reading chair, you know, mm. with an ottoman with an ottoman. I'll send you, I'll, I'll send you a picture. I'll take a picture. Nice. Me. So I sit there with my feet up on this leather reading chair and I've got this, you know, this piece of wood that I basically, that I use for a desk. I just put it across the armrests. And so I'm sitting there in perfect comfort and I put my laptop on the piece of wood and then I type for about three hours and I say, all right, let's have lunch. And then if I have a lot of fire in a lot of juice or a deadline, but uh, deadlines are usually not a problem for me, then I'll come back in the afternoon for the early afternoon and I'll go for a couple more hours. But I mean, I have found in my own experience that if it's 4 PM or thereafter, I'm worthless. I'm, there's nothing good coming out of my brain. Like this podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing fine. It may just be if you were typing it to me, that would be a challenge. Right. So what was the timeline? Like, so you're good with deadlines. Obviously, you have to be in what you're doing. But what was your this was sort of your own project, right outside of your regular deadline world. So how did it work getting this from the beginning of the idea to the finished book? Okay, that's that's a good question. I think it was that there was a six month burst to start. And then as I said, I, I honestly I can't remember which I, I got called away on a, a, a script job. And I must have done that for three or four months. And then that was done. And I said, Okay, I'm not I'm not going to take any, any more, you know, uh, script work until I finish this book. Because uh, you know, I was thinking about the books that I had written in college and that kind of thing. And, you know, you put this massive amount of time into these 300 pages and you try to get them published briefly when you're young and it doesn't work. And then it ends up on your computer. Uh, and then the computer operating systems keep getting updated and pretty soon the files are archaic and you can't open them anymore. And you're like, what, what, you know, what happened? It's gone. <laughs> He's not coming back. Um, and so I said, you know, it, it, it's time to finish one, you know, and, 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 uh, and get it out there. And so I really made a commitment. And, and that was another six month block, I would say, with all the rewriting and editing and stuff. So, you know, a year, you know, wall to wall, really, with a four month hiatus. That sounds reasonable. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. And then you said that, you know, it, it's sometimes challenging dealing with all tons and tons of people giving you notes. So whose input were you seeking with the book? Uh, just confidants, just just people within my life that were not industry related in any way, shape or form. I just wanted people that I respected their opinion, you know, that I'd known for, you know, decades often, um, to come in and say, you know, what sucks, you know, what's good, you know, how, how do we make this good for good sake? And, you know, and again, what's so interesting is everyone's got their different opinion. You know, the first person you get the re- reaction from you like, Oh my God, that's a huge hole in the book. I had no idea people thought that. And the next person comes in and goes, that part was awesome. But the other part sucks. And you're like, Oh, and after about 10 or 12 people, you go, okay, I got to slow down here and I just need to distill all this and really kind of read between the lines and see what the common threads are. Do I agree with them? And then, of course, working with uh, Naomi uh, Eagleson, she's uh, she's the editor, and she was great. So I think that's always a challenge. Like if you're in any kind of writer's group, and you're like, here it is, and everyone's like, go this way, go that way, go this way, and then you end up rewriting it, and it's like 
you're like, wait a minute, where was the original premise? So That's right. how much That's did right. you end up changing it in the revision process? Like what kind of shifts were you making at that stage? Not a ton. It was primarily around Lily. I was working on her character a bit more and getting into her history and that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I'm like a like a three draft guy, you know, um, I, I find that's the case with with most of my uh, scripts. And I think that's about the same with this book, you know, three in, you know intensive drafts, because uh, I worry I worry about people that do 25 drafts, you know, because, again, I think that's one of those things you're talking about, which is you get that point where you're so over it and you, you honestly don't know what you're changing and why it's just changing. You don't know if it's better. And you can understand why artists and writers and everybody are neurotic. It's just like, you know, you know, <laughs> what I found as I, as I, as I move along in, in this profession is that, you know, obviously writing great stuff is, is the goal, right? But retaining your sanity and your normal normalcy and your life is, is just as valuable because you look at all these people, you know, that have just flamed out, you know, and, killed themselves or 50 or whatever. And it's like, you're not my idol. You know, I don't care that you wrote old man of the sea, you put a shotgun in your mouth and you should blew your head off. You were unhappy. You, you didn't do it right. So for me, there's a balance between beating yourself to death, you know, to get the best that you can out of it. And also knowing that, you know, that's good enough. That's, that's what I had to say. And maybe that's the best one I wrote. Maybe it's the second best one I wrote. Maybe it's the worst one I wrote, but I'll write another. Yeah. I think the confidence in knowing there's going to be more and not being a slave to perfection right. or thinking that perfection is the whole point. Yeah. And again, I mean, there are so many, I mean, you think about, and it's, it, it always blows me away. Like in my spare time, I go to the art Academy in San Francisco and I, you know, I'm learning to kind of draw and paint in that classic kind of manner. Uh, and I'm so struck by the talent, you know, these people that, you know, these, you know, these are undergraduates. I mean, they're 19, 20 years old and they're just hammering out these incredible, you know, renderings. And I'm thinking, look at the talent on that person. Or, you know, you go to, you know, a conservatory and you see these these people musically or, you know, these writers and all these people just doing things, you know, arguably perfectly. Right. And yet you have you, you have to get lightning in a bottle. You know, you have to have that perfect concurrence of, you know, all these things happening at once to be recognized. Right. And so, I mean, there's so many people that have created, quote unquote, the perfect book or the perfect song or the perfect painting or the perfect whatever. And it didn't land. Nobody acknowledged it. You know, society didn't see it. They didn't get that pat on the back that they wanted. And at what price was that arrived at? I don't know if that makes sense, but no, it does. There's more to it than just making a perfect work of art, in my opinion. There's more holistic vision of being a human being than that. And even if they recognize it. Sometimes people are never able to do it again. I mean, I think of Harper Lee. Oh, yeah. Many people think that is a perfect book, but did she ever have the resources to do it again? Who knows how she felt about writing anymore? Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's everybody. I mean, that's Salinger. It's everybody, right? I mean, everyone, you know, they say everyone's got one book in them and then they chase it for the rest of the time. And the worst thing I've, I've, you know, I've seen in kind of my exposure to the rich and famous and successful and all that is that, uh, is to have an early success. Because, as I said, what your contribution to that success, in other words, this wonderful novel that you wrote, is only part of it. It's all the, all the other kind of coincidences and, you know, timing things that got that book, you know, recognized. It, that's beyond your control. 
Um, and then of course, you know, norms change within a couple of years or a couple of minutes now. Um, and so you come back and try to do it again and you're like, don't you know who I am? I'm Jack Kerouac. And they're like, yeah, who cares, man? You're just some drunk dude. So it's very hard to repeat, but it's that whole idea of chasing the dragon, right? Which is they want the high again. They want the high again. And, and you know, the ones that can actually do it are remarkable. I have to say. You know, and, and there's very few in the world of music and the world of film and the world of literature where you're like, wow, they just keep doing it. At, and I'm talking at that super high level. And those people are extraordinary, but half of them are probably crazy. Or maybe to go back to your thought about Buddhism, they're just not that attached to that result. That's not the reason they're doing it, maybe. Uh, that would be ideal. And that's what I strive for. Yeah, I, I would like to be at that point. But I, I think all of us think about getting to that point of being like, oh, that it doesn't matter how successful you are. You just love doing it, but that's probably hard to achieve. I think. And, and there's two things that I always do as kind of reality checks for me is, um, you know, I'm in the film business and get interviewed and, you know, the accolades are sometimes great. Sometimes they're, you know, muted and all that, you know, get nominated or something like that. And you think, Oh, well I'm kind of somebody, but then you go back and you watch like a 1930s film where they used to show the credits before the film, right? And they'd roll out all the credits before the film. And it's like the best boy and the gaffer and the, you know, associate editor. And you're looking at all those names and you're like, who, right? The screenwriter, who, you know, the producer, who And time just eats us up. And so that's, that's who we're destined to be. You know, we're destined to be that, that credit that nobody watches. And the other thing I would say, and, and I'm trying to make this not too maudlin, but again, I, I, I touched on the notion that my mom, uh, that my mom passed away a couple of years ago. And as I said, she's a very prolific and very skilled writer in the world of nonfiction. And uh, I watched her die. I watched her waist away, got down to 80 pounds and she died. The uh, hearse came and picked her up and kind of took her away like she was um, trash, like, a, like, you know, something that needed to be disposed of. The body was just this thing that needed to be disposed of. And all the stuff that she had been was kind of just ancillary to that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, and, and so my dad came to me like a week or two later and he said, I want you to have these. And, and he'd given me a box of her 23 books. Right. And so I'm like, right, this is such an honor. And you know, it's my mother and I've always respected her as a writer. And you know, I could, I could, I could only, you know, wish to be as, as, as accomplished as her. And I took the box and I went downstairs and I put it on the shelf in the basement. I said, I'll just put it here for now. And it's been two and a half years. That box hasn't moved. Those books are in that box. And generally speaking, that's what's going to happen to all of our work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because there's so much, especially now, I mean, there's so much material out there in the form of the Internet and Netflix and anything. I mean, it's, just, it's a staggering amount of stuff. And so you really think that, my book or my TV show is going to be referenced in 50 years? No. Um, and if it is, I won't be around anyhow. So, so I think there's a, a, a certain humility that's required. It's like you're just going to be swallowed up. So don't take it that serious to the point that you drive yourself crazy. Does it give you a sense of freedom or, or what motivates you in the face of knowing that? You know, I, I've asked myself that question because, you know, you, you definitely get that, you know, in Christianity, it's that all is vanity thing, right? Um, and in, in, in Buddhism, it's uh, impermanence and it's, you know, the, the petty thing to do is throw your hands up and goes, well, then why does it matter? Why do anything? But you want to do something with your days, you know, you want to be engaged, enthused, uh, discover, 
And so that's, I think that's primarily why I write now. It's just, you know, I need something to do and, and I want to do something that stimulates me. And occasionally, you know, I mean, as you know, it's like when you get that spiraling, beautiful kind of sentence and idea that's just coming out of the ether and you're following it, it's, it's like a, a symphony and, and it's, it's euphoric and it's a drug and it's, it's unlike anything else. Uh, and again, I mean, you can, be, you can also be chasing the dragon on that, trying to constantly recapture that, but it's, um, it's better than the alternative. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And it sounds like, you know, the creative process as a whole is appealing if you're not only writing, but doing all this, but you're al also studying art alongside it. Yeah. I mean, I just think that there is something, as I say, there's reverie in it. There's, there's meditation in it, if you want. You can really transcend. You can get lost. And that's a special feeling. Oh, man. I'm, I'm, let's see if I can remember this. You know Josh Ritter, the singer? Uh -huh. Yeah, he has a wonderful line in the bonus song about, uh, shit, I can't remember. I'll have to email it. It's awesome. It's about, it's about, woe is he who sings to be remembered. I'll remember your song, but I'll forget your name or something right. like that. It's, it's just yeah. super cool. It's about the process and the, 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 the thing itself rather than you, you know? And I think that's that's really cool. Yeah, I think it's cool, too. I think somehow, you know, creating a story and getting attached to a story and having it become real is kind of the most exciting thing you can do. Yeah, it, it's interesting because there's something in us, you know, that that needs that. I mean, it, and I'm really curious. I mean, if you really try to break it down on a kind of, you know, psychological level, it's like, why do we get so high creating, making something out of nothing? And uh, you ever seen that Werner Herzog film, um, The Cave of Forgotten Dreams? No, I've seen some of his, but not that one. I mean, it's a little ponderous in Werner, and, you know, he talks slow in that Werner voice. But, um, the but whole it's, nature uh, is disgusting, that whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I like him. I'm, getting, I'm going to No, he Werner. cracks me up. But Cave of Forgotten Dreams is great because it was about a, it's about a subject that, I, that I'm already fascinated by, which is Lascaux and all those, you know, prehistoric caves. And, you know, it's just, you know, you see those things that they were creating 40 and 50,000 years ago, these cavemen, uh, you, know, you know, basically cavemen, uh, with this need to, to draw stuff on the wall, to record their hand, the shape of their hand in the wall. And it's like, why? What is that? What is that primordial thing? And, and I... You know, I usually think I have an answer for things, but that one I don't. I don't think any of us have the answer, but we keep doing it anyway. But it's just intrinsic, which is kind of cool. I mean, it's like, all right, that's, I guess, what I got to do. So you're in an interesting position because you could have chosen to write this story as a screenplay, but you chose to write it as a book. So I've had a lot of authors on who are kind of excited about the idea of being optioned, but... I'm wondering how you would feel, like what you see as the future for the book. Do you want it? Do, are you protective of it and you just want it to be a novel? Or how would you like to see the book's future play out? Generally speaking, I think people that, that you know, are excited to have their book option is one, it's nice to get the money. And, you know, wow, Hollywood money is, you know, particularly if they make it and you've somehow negotiated a good back end and all that stuff. Wow, I'm gonna get super rich more than the you know ten thousand bucks they gave me for this book. So that's one part. The second is you know Hollywood is always sexier before you've been in it. <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, you know, I mean, it would just have to be this whole elixir of this incredible actress and this incredible filmmaker and this incredible vision that somebody has and convince me to do it. But for the most part, yeah, I mean, it, it strangely it would feel like an adulteration to me. It would feel like it is its own thing and it was just 
in its purest form that, and I don't want it to be anything else. Yeah, because this was a conscious choice to write it this way. And where you, where's all that description going to go? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to get the notes. <laughs> all right, Paul, it's, it's 500 pages in paperback, but we, can you make it 140? <laughs> yeah, because we don't want to go over two hours that much because people will get upset. But just what happens to her at the end? Just, just Can you get to the Could end? Could you just push that up, like skip? Yeah. You know, we don't need four acts. We just want three. Just And I did get a note early on from one of the only uh, Hollywood agents that I let read it. Yeah. Oh, super, Paul. It's great. Any chance you can make Lily a man? <laughs> that, that's that's the last guy I'm asking. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it's just what you think. Yeah, I know. So true. Well, I hope that, that everybody enjoys reading it as a book and is happy with it as a book because some things are just perfect as a book. Yeah, I hope so, too. I mean, I just feel like there's there's a little bit for everybody there. I think women and men and whoever, you know, they're yearning a little bit for a little more in their life might read it. And, you know, it's also it's also reads in a, you know, a missing man story. I mean, at the core of it, it's a, it's a mystery. I mean, so more than anything else, it's like, well, what did happen to it? Um, and I think that's always a good spine for a story, which is, you know, you'll, you'll read the last page if you really want to know what really happened. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, it's, it's definitely a page turner. So I hope everybody enjoys it. So thank you so much, Paul, for coming on and, and talking to us about all this. It's been really great. Yeah, that was super fun, Carolyn. I appreciate it. Anytime uh, the studio. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.